August, Derelith, August, Arkham House, and the Cthulhu Mythos. This is the first, mm, the first of the month, will be an audio recreation of the first edition of The Outsider and Others. Uh, the first glimpse uh, the public gets of H.P. Lovecraft's skill as a writer of horror. Just like beer, so I'm not going to list what's in the episode, so I just hope you enjoy today's surprise. Brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out the brand new Dino Sound Slippers. Slippers make a roaring sound every couple of steps. Soft plush uppers, foam footbeds, grip slippers so that you don't fall on your ass when you're skulking around the house at 3 a.m. All right. And let's see, what else do we have? We also have, check out Dave's Corner of the Universe every last Tuesday of the month, part of our monthly Cthulhu Mythos and other weirdness episodes. Or go to his blog at davescorneroftheuniverse.wordpress.com. And yeah, I have to say, check out Dave's Corner of the Universe, all kinds of fun stuff. If you like role-playing games, he just recently made stats for Ambrose Bierce, part of last month's Ambrose Bierce. Yeah, last month's Ambrose Spears month. So yeah, check that out. And also help support the show by buying a shirt, uh, pgttcm.threadless.com. And we've got the cool Sathagua Latina Cha Ratfink-inspired t-shirts that I just made the other day. And the super cool Join a Cult t-shirt that has kind of a hand-drawn Cthulhu with X's over its eye. It's I think you'll dig it. I think you'll dig it. Anyway, so also check out the show's merch table at pgttcm.com. I think it's uh, just labeled shop. Or by donating a few dollars to paypal.me slash pgttcm. Special thanks to all of our guests later this month. And check out whatever they've got going on. If you want to be on pgttcm or Black Clock Audio due to your profession, or hobbies in academics, arts, or literature pertaining to gothic horror, cosmic horror, weird fiction, or anything that we cover on the show, go to pgttcm.com slash contact and talk to me about stuff. Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads you a story, either a chapter, a novel, or a whole short story. Join us in our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu Mythos. What are you talking about? This month it's all about the Cthulhu Mythos. And Arkham uh, House Publications and August Durless. Look for our podcast wherever you find your podcasts. We suggest Podbean or Apple Podcasts. And hey... If you're one of our regular listeners who's not a big Cthulhu Mythos fan, you probably know someone who talks about that Cthulhu guy all the time. And hey, tell them about this month. Or hey, if you've got friends who you want to know more about the Cthulhu Mythos, pass this month on to them. And it's going to be a lot of really good, ep- uh, really good uh, examples of H.P. Lovecraft. So hey, um, we've got that going on. Find us on the web at pgttcm.com and Black Audio, bleh, Black Clock Audio on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Black Clock Audio Tales on YouTube, and we're also People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. So just Google Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, one of those two, you'll find us. All right, check out the website. 
Uh, edited by Daniel Spitzer. Produced in Badger Strip Studios in lovely North Portland, Oregon, USA. The Festival by H.P. Lovecraft. Read by Morgan Scorpion. Efficuit demones, but quae non sunt, sic tamen quasi sint. Conspicienda hominibus exhibiant. Lacantius. Devils so work that things which are not appear to men as if they were real. I was far from home, and the spell of the eastern sea was upon me. In the twilight I heard it pounding on the rocks, and I knew it lay just over the hill where the twisting willows writhed against the clearing sky and the first stars of evening. And because my fathers had called me to the old town beyond, I pushed on through the shallow, new-fallen snow along the road that soared lonely up to where Aldebaran twinkled among the trees, on toward the very ancient town that I had never seen, but often dreamed of. It was the Yuletide that men call Christmas, though they know in their hearts it is older than Bethlehem and Babylon, older than Memphis and mankind. It was the Yuletide, and I had come at last to the ancient sea-town where my people had dwelt, and kept festival in the elder time when festival was forbidden, where also they had commanded their sons to keep festival once every century, that the memory of primal secrets might not be forgotten. Mine were an old people, and were old even when this land was settled three hundred years before, and they were strange, because they had come as dark furtive folk from the opiate southern gardens of orchids, and spoken another tongue before they learned the tongue of the blue-eyed fishers. And now they were scattered, and shared only the rituals of mysteries that none living could understand. I was the only one who came back that night to the old fishing town as legend bade, for only the poor and lonely remember. Then beyond the hill's crest I saw Kingsport, outspread frostily in the gloaming, snowy Kingsport, with its ancient veins and steeples, ridge-poles and chimney-pots, wharves and small bridges, willow-trees and graveyards, endless labyrinths of steep, narrow, crooked streets, and dizzy church-crowned central peak that time durst not touch, ceaseless mazes of colonial houses piled and scattered at all angles and levels like a child's disordered blocks, antiquity hovering on grey wings over winter-whitened gables and gambrel roofs, fan-lights and small-paned windows one by one gleaming out in the cold dusk to join Orion and the archaic stars. And against the rotting wharves the sea pounded, the secretive, immemorial sea out of which the people had come in the elder time. Beside the road at its quest a still higher summit rose, bleak and windswept, and I saw that it was a burying ground where black gravestones stuck ghoulishly through the snow like the decayed fingernails of a gigantic corpse. The printless road was very lonely, and sometimes I thought I heard a distant horrible creaking, as of a gibbet in the wind. They had hanged four kinsmen of mine for witchcraft in 1692, but I did not know just where. As the road wound down the seaward slope, I listened for the merry sounds of a village at evening, but did not hear them. Then I thought of the season and felt that these old Puritan folk might well have Christmas customs strange to me, and full of silent half-side prayer. So after that I did not listen for merriment or look for wayfarers, 
kept on down past the hushed, lighted farmhouses and shadowy stone walls to where the signs of ancient shops and sea taverns creaked in the salt breeze, and the grotesque knockers of pillared doorways glistened along deserted unpaved lanes in the light of little, curtained windows. I had seen maps of the town, and knew where to find the home of my people. I was told that I should be known and welcomed, for village legend lives long, so I hastened through back streets to Circle Court, and across the fresh snow on the one full flagstone pavement in the town, to where Green Lane leads off behind the market house. The old maps still held good, and I had no trouble, though at Arkham they must have lied when they said the trolleys ran to this place, since I saw not a wire overhead. Snow would have hidden the rails in any case. I was glad I had chosen to walk, for the white village had seemed very beautiful from the hill, and now I was eager to knock at the door of my people, the seventh house on the left in Green Lane, with an ancient peaked roof and jutting second story, all built before 1650. There were lights inside the house when I came upon it, and I saw from the diamond window panes that it must have been kept very close to its antique state. The upper part overhung the narrow grass-grown street, and nearly met the overhanging part of the house opposite, so that I was almost in a tunnel, with the low stone doorstep wholly free from snow. There was no sidewalk, but many houses had high doors reached by double flights of steps with iron railings. It was an odd scene, and because I was strange to New England, I had never known its like before. Though it pleased me, I would have relished it better if there had been footprints in the snow, and people in the streets, and a few windows without drawn curtains. When I sounded the archaic iron knocker, I was half afraid. Some fear had been gathering in me, perhaps because of the strangeness of my heritage, and the bleakness of the evening, and the queerness of the silence in that aged town of curious customs. And when my knock was answered, I was fully afraid, because I had not heard any footsteps before the door creaked open. But I was not afraid long, for the gowned, slippered old man in the doorway had a bland face that reassured me, and though he made signs that he was dumb, he wrote a quaint and ancient welcome with the starless and wax tablet he carried. He beckoned me into a low, candle-lit room, with massive exposed rafters and dark, stiff, sparse furniture of the seventeenth century. The past was vivid there, for not an attribute was missing. There was a cavernous fireplace and a spinning wheel at which a bent old woman in loose wrapper and deep poke bonnet sat back toward me, silently spinning despite the festive season. An indefinite dampness seemed upon the place, and I marvelled that no fire should be blazing. The high-backed settle faced the row of curtained windows at the left, and seemed to be occupied, though I was not sure. I did not like everything about what I saw, and felt again the fear I had had. This fear grew stronger from what had before lessened it. For the more I looked at the old man's bland face, the more its very blandness terrified me. The eyes never moved, and the skin was too much like wax. Finally, I was sure it was not a face at all, but a fiendishly cunning mask. But the flabby hands, curiously gloved, wrote genially on the tablet and told me I must wait a while before I could be led to the place of the festival. Pointing to a chair, table and pile of books, the old man now left the room, and when I sat down to read I saw that the books were hoary and mouldy, 
and that they included old Morister's wild marvels of science, the terrible Sadicismus Triumphatus of Joseph Glanville, published in 1681, the shocking Demonolatrea of Remigius, printed in 1595 at Lyon, and worst of all, the unmentionable Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul Halhazred in Olas Wormius's forbidden Latin translation, a book which I had never seen, but of which I had heard monstrous things whispered. No one spoke to me, but I could hear the creaking of signs in the wind outside, and the whir of the wheel as the bonneted old woman continued her silent spinning, spinning. I thought the room and the books and the people very morbid and disquieting, but because an old tradition of my father's had summoned me to strange feastings, I resolved to expect queer things. So I tried to read, and soon became tremblingly absorbed by something I found in that accursed Necronomicon, a thought and a legend too hideous for sanity or consciousness. But I disliked it when I fancied I heard the closing of one of the windows that the settle faced, as if it had been stealthily opened. It had seemed to follow a whirring that was not of the old woman's spinning wheel. This was not much, though, for the old woman was spinning very hard, and the aged clock had been striking. After that I lost the feeling that there were persons on the settle, and was reading intently and shudderingly when the old man came back, booted and dressed in a loose antique costume, and sat down on that very bench, so that I could not see him. It was certainly nervous waiting, and the blasphemous book in my hands made it doubly so. When eleven struck, however, the old man stood up, glided to a massive carved chest in the corner, and got two hooded cloaks, one of which he donned, and the other of which he draped round the old woman, who was seizing her monotonous spinning. Then they both started for the outer door, the woman lamely creeping, and the old man, after picking up the very book I had been reading, beckoning me, as he drew his hood over that unmoving face or mask. We went out into the moonless and tortuous network of that incredibly ancient town, went out as the lights in the curtain windows disappeared one by one, and the dog-star leered at the throng of cowled, cloaked figures that poured silently from every doorway, and formed monstrous processions up this street and that, past the creaking signs and the antediluvian gables, the thatched roofs and diamond-paned windows, threading precipitous lanes where decaying houses overlapped and crumbled together, gliding across open courts and churchyards where the bobbing lanterns made eldritch drunken constellations. Amid these hushed throngs I followed my voiceless guides, jostled by elbows that seemed preternaturally soft, and pressed by chests and stomachs that seemed abnormally pulpy. Up, 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 the eerie column slithered, and I saw that all the travellers were converging as they flowed near a sort of focus of crazy alleys at the top of a high hill in the centre of the town, where perched a great white church. I had seen it from the road's crest when I looked at Kingsport in the new dusk, and it had made me shiver, because Alderbaran had seemed to balance itself a moment on the ghostly spire. There was an open space around the church, partly a churchyard with spectral shafts, and partly a half-paved square swept nearly bare of snow by the wind, and lined with unwholesomely archaic houses, having peaked roofs and overhanging gables. Death-fires danced over the tombs, revealing gruesome vistas, though queerly failing to cast any shadows. 
Past the churchyard, where there were no houses, I could see over the hill's summit and watch the glimmer of stars on the harbour, though the town was invisible in the dark. Once in a while a lantern bobbed horribly through serpentine alleys on its way to overtake the throng that was now slipping speechlessly into the church. I waited till the crowd had oozed into the black doorway, and till all the stragglers had followed. The old man was pulling at my sleeve, but I was determined to be the last. Crossing the threshold into the swarming temple of unknown darkness, I turned once to look at the outside world as the churchyard phosphorescence cast a sickly glow on the hilltop pavement. As I did so, I shuddered, for though the wind had not left much snow, a few patches did remain on the path near the door, and in the fleeting backward look it seemed to my troubled eyes that they bore no mark of passing feet, not even mine. The church was scarce lighted by all the lanterns that had entered it, for most of the throng had already vanished. They had streamed up the aisle between the high pews to the trap-door of the vaults, which yawned loathsomely open just before the pulpit, and were now squirming noiselessly in. I followed dumbly down the foot-worn steps and into the dark, suffocating crypt. The tale of that sinuous line of night-marches seemed very horrible, and as I saw them wriggling into a venerable tomb, they seemed more horrible still. Then I noticed that the tomb's floor had an aperture down which the throng was sliding, and in a moment we were all descending an ominous staircase of rough-hewn stone, a narrow spiral staircase, damp and peculiarly odorous, that wound endlessly down into the bowels of the hill past monotonous walls of dripping stone blocks and crumbling mortar. It was a silent, shocking descent, and I observed after a horrible interval that the walls and steps were changing in nature, as if chiselled out of the solid rock. What mainly troubled me was that the myriad footfalls made no sound, and set up no echoes. After more eons of descent I saw some side passages or burrows leading from unknown recesses of blackness to this shaft of nighted mystery. Soon they became excessively numerous, like impious catacombs of nameless menace, and their pungent odour of decay grew quite unbearable. I knew we must have passed down through the mountain and beneath the earth of Kingsport itself, and I shivered that a town should be so aged and maggoty with subterraneous evil. Then I saw the lurid shimmering of pale light, and heard the insidious lapping of sunless waters. Again I shivered, for I did not like the things that the night had brought, and wished bitterly that no forefather had summoned me to this primal rite. As the steps and the passage grew broader, I heard another sound, the thin, whining mockery of a feeble flute, and suddenly there spread out before me the boundless vista of an inner world, a vast, fungus shore litten by a belching column of sick, greenish flame, and washed by a wide, oily river that flowed from abysses frightful and unsuspected to join the blackest gulfs of immemorial ocean. Fainting and gasping, I looked at that unhallowed Erebus of titan toadstools, leprous fire and slimy water, and saw the cloaked throngs forming a semicircle around the blazing pillar. It was the Yulewite, older than man and fated to survive him, the primal rite of the solstice and of spring's promise beyond the snows, the rite of fire and evergreen, light and music. And in the Stygian grotto I saw them do the rite, and adore the sick pillar of flame, and throw into the water handfuls gouged out of the viscous vegetation which glittered green in the chlorotic glare. 
I saw this, and I saw something amorphously squatted far away from the light, piping noisomely on a flute, and as the thing piped, I thought I heard Notch's muffled flutterings in the fetid darkness where I could not see. But what frightened me most was that flaming column, spouting volcanically from depths profound and inconceivable, casting no shadows as healthy flames should, and coating the nitrous stone with a nasty, venomous verdigris. For in that seething combustion no warmth lay, but only the clamminess of death and corruption. The man who had wrought me now squirmed to a point directly beside the hideous flame, and made stiff ceremonial motions to the semicircle he faced. At certain stages of the ritual they did grovelling obeisance, especially when he held above his head that abhorrent necronomicon he had taken with him, and I shared all the obeisances, because I had been summoned to this festival by the writings of my forefathers. Then the old man made a signal to the half-seen flute-player in the darkness, which player thereupon changed its feeble drone to a scarce louder drone in another key, precipitating as it did so a horror unthinkable and unexpected. At this horror I sank nearly to the lichened earth, transfixed with a dread not of this or any world, but only of the mad spaces between the stars. Out of the unimaginable blackness beyond the gangrenous glare of that cold flame, out of the Tartarian leagues through which that oily river rolled uncanny, unheard and unsuspected, there flopped rhythmically a horde of tame, trained, hybrid winged things that no sound eye could ever wholly grasp, or sound brain ever wholly remember. They were not altogether crows, nor moles, nor buzzards, nor ants, nor vampire bats, nor decomposed human beings, but something I cannot and must not recall. They flopped limply along, half with their webbed feet and half with their membranous wings, and as they reached the throng of celebrants, the cowled figures seized and mounted them, and rode off one by one along the reaches of that unlighted river, into pits and galleries of panic where poison springs feed frightful and undiscoverable cataracts. The old spinning woman had gone with the throng, and the old man remained only because I had refused when he motioned me to seize an animal and ride like the rest. I saw when I staggered to my feet that the amorphous flute-player had rolled out of sight, but that two of the beasts were patiently standing by. As I hung back, the old man produced his stylus and tablet, and wrote that he was the true deputy of my father's who had founded the Yule worship in this ancient place, that it had been decreed I should come back and that the most secret mysteries were yet to be performed. He wrote this in a very ancient hand, and when I still hesitated he pulled from his loose robe a seal-ring and a watch, both with my family arms, to prove that he was what he said. But it was a hideous proof, because I knew from old papers that that watch had been buried with my great-great-great-great-grandfather in 1698. Presently the old man drew back his hood, and pointed to the family resemblance in his face. But I only shuddered because I was sure that the face was merely a devilish waxen mask. The flopping animals were now scratching restlessly at the lichens, and I saw that the old man was nearly as restless himself. When one of the things began to waddle and edge away, he turned quickly to stop it, so that the suddenness of his motion dislodged the waxen mask from what should have been his head. And then because that nightmare's position barred me from the stone staircase down which we had come, I flung myself into the oily underground river that bubbled somewhere to the caves of the sea, 
flung myself into that putrescent juice of earth's inner horrors before the madness of my screams could bring down upon me all the charnel legions these pest gulfs might conceal. At the hospital they told me I had been found half-frozen in Kingsport Harbour at dawn, clinging to the drifting spar that accident sent to save me. They told me I had taken the wrong fork up the hill road the night before, and fallen over the cliffs at Orange Point, a thing they deduced from prints found in the snow. There was nothing I could say, because everything was wrong. Everything was wrong, with the broad windows showing a sea of roofs in which only about one in five was ancient, and the sound of trolleys and motors in the streets below. They insisted that this was Kingsport, and I could not deny it. When I went delirious at hearing that the hospital stood near the old churchyard on Central Hill, they sent me to St. Mary's Hospital in Arkham, where I could have better care. I liked it there, for the doctors were broad-minded, and even lent me their influence in obtaining the carefully sheltered copy of Alhazra's objectionable Necronomicon from the library of Miskatonic University. They said something about a psychosis, and agreed I had better get any harassing obsessions off my mind. So I read that hideous chapter, and shuddered doubly because it was indeed not new to me. I had seen it before, let footprints tell what they might, and where it was I had seen it were best forgotten. There was no one, in waking hours, who could remind me of it, but my dreams are filled with terror, because of phrases I dare not quote. I dare quote only one paragraph, put into such English as I can make from the awkward low Latin. The nethermost caverns, wrote the mad Arab, are not for the fathoming of eyes that see, for their marvels are strange and terrific. Cursed the ground where dead thoughts live new and oddly bodied, and evil the mind that is held by no head. Wisely did Ibn Shakabar say, that happy is the tomb where no wizard hath lain, and happy the town at night whose wizards are all ashes. For it is of old rumour that the soul of the devil brought hastes not from his charnel clay, but fats and instructs the very worm that gnaws, till out of corruption horrid life springs, and the dull scavengers of earth wax crafty to vex it, and swell monstrous to plague it. Great holes secretly are digged where earth's pores ought to suffice, and things have learnt to walk that ought to crawl. That was The Festival by H. P. Lovecraft Read by Morgan Scorpion Recording by Jenny Sanders The Terrible Old Man by H.P. Lovecraft It was the design of Angelo Ricci and Joe Zanuck and Manuel Silva to call on the terrible old man. 
This old man dwells all alone in a very ancient house on Water Street near the sea, and is reputed to be both exceedingly rich and exceedingly feeble, which forms a situation very attractive to men of the profession of Messrs. Ritchie, Zanuck, and Silva, for that profession was nothing less dignified than robbery. The inhabitants of Kingsport say and think many things about the terrible old man, which generally keep him safe from the attention of gentlemen like Mr. Ricci and his colleagues, despite the almost certain fact that he hides a fortune of indefinite magnitude somewhere about his musty and venerable abode. He is, in truth, a very strange person, believed to have been a captain of East India Clipper ships in his day, so old that no one can remember when he was young, and so taciturn that few know his real name. Among the gnarled trees in the front yard of his aged and neglected place, he maintains a strange collection of large stones, oddly grouped and painted so that they resemble the idols in some obscure eastern temple. This collection frightens away most of the small boys who love to taunt the terrible old man about his long white hair and beard, or to break the small-paned windows of his dwelling with wicked missiles. But there are other things which frighten the older and more curious folk, who sometimes steal up to the house to peer in through the dusty panes. These folk say that on a table in a bare room, on the ground floor, are many peculiar bottles, and each a small piece of lead suspended pendulum-wise from a string, and they say that the terrible old man talks to these bottles, addressing them by such names as Jack, Scarface, Long Tom, Spanish Joe, Peters, and Mate Ellis and that whenever he speaks to a bottle, the little lead pendulum within makes certain definite vibrations as if in answer. Those who have watched the tall, lean, terrible man in these peculiar conversations do not watch him again. But Angelo Ricci and Joe Zanuck and Manuel Silva were not of Kingsport blood. They were of that new and heterogeneous alien stock which lies outside the charm circle of New England life and traditions and they saw in the terrible old man merely a tottering, almost helpless greybeard who could not walk without the aid of his knotted cane and whose thin, weak hands shook pitifully. They were really quite sorry in their way for the lonely and popular old fellow, whom everybody shunned, and at whom all the dogs barked singularly. But business is business, and to a robber whose soul is in his profession, there is a lure and a challenge about a very old and very feeble man who has no account at the bank, and who pays for his few necessities at the village store with Spanish gold and silver minted two centuries ago. Messrs. Ritchie, Zanuck, and Silva selected the night of April 11th for their call. Mr. Ritchie and Mr. Silva were to interview the poor old gentleman, whilst Mr. Zanuck waited for them and their presumable metallic burden with a covered motor car in Ship Street by the gate in the tall rear wall of their host's grounds. Desire to avoid needless explanations in case of unexpected police intrusions prompted these plans for a quiet and unostentatious departure. As prearranged, the three adventurers started out separately in order to prevent any evil-minded suspicions afterward. Messrs. Ritchie and Silva met in Water Street by the old man's front gate, and although they did not like the way the moon shone down upon the painted stones through the budding branches of the gnarled trees, they had more important things to think about than mere idle superstition. They feared it might be unpleasant work, making the terrible old man loquacious concerning his hoarded gold and silver, for aged sea captains are notably stubborn and perverse. Still, 
He was very old and very feeble, and there were two visitors. Messieurs Ritchie and Silva were experienced in the art of making unwilling persons voluble, and the screams of a weak and exceptionally venerable man can be easily muffled. So they moved up to the one lighted window and heard the terrible old man talking childishly to his bottles with pendulums. Then they donned masks and knocked politely at the weather-stained oaken door. Waiting seemed very long to Mr. Zanuck as he fidgeted restlessly in the covered motor car by the terrible old man's back gate in Ship Street. He was more than ordinarily tender-hearted, and he did not like the hideous screams he had heard in the ancient house just after the hour appointed for the deed. Had he not told his colleagues to be as gentle as possible with the pathetic old sea captain? Very nervously, he watched the narrow oaken gate in the high and ivy-clad stone wall. Frequently, he consulted his watch and wondered at the delay. Had the old man died before revealing where his treasure was hidden, and had a thorough search become necessary? Mr. Zanuck did not like to wait so long in the dark in such a place. Then he sensed a soft tread, or tapping, on the walk inside the gate, heard a gentle fumbling at the rusty latch, and saw the narrow, heavy door swing inward. And in the pallid glow of the single dim street lamp, he strained his eyes to see what his colleagues had brought out of that sinister house which loomed so close behind. But when he looked, he did not see what he had expected, for his colleagues were not there at all, but only the terrible old man, leaning quietly on his knotted cane and smiling hideously. Mr. Zanuck had never before noticed the color of that man's eyes. Now he saw that they were yellow. Little things make considerable excitement in little towns, which is the reason that Kingsport people talked all that spring and summer about the three unidentifiable bodies, horribly slashed, as with many cutlasses, and horribly mangled, as by the tread of many cruel boot heels, which the tide washed in. And some people even spoke of things as trivial as the deserted motor car found in Ship Street, or certain especially inhuman cries, probably of a stray animal or migratory bird, heard in the night by wakeful citizens. But in this idle village gossip, the terrible old man took no interest at all. He was by nature reserved, and when one is aged and feeble, one's reserve is doubly strong. Besides, so ancient a sea captain must have witnessed scores of things, much more stirring in the far-off days of his unremembered youth. Hey everyone, thank you again for listening to the show. We're not done. We've got more Lovecraft coming up. But just a reminder to rate, review, and subscribe if you're enjoying the show. If you have any suggestions, you can contact me on Facebook at People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos and Black Clock Audio Tales. So, yeah, if you have any suggestions, anything you want to hear on the show, you want to read something, you want to be a guest on the show, hey, are you in Portland and want to be a guest on Welcome to Portland, sit in the basement and... Uh, drink beer and eat charcuterie and uh, talk about yourself, hey, I'm down for it. Go to pgttcm.com and check out Welcome to Portland. All right, back to the show. Recording by Jared Hess. The Tomb by H.P. Lovecraft. In relating the circumstances which have led to my confinement within this refuge for the demented, 
I am aware that my present position will create a natural doubt of the authenticity of my narrative. It is an unfortunate fact that the bulk of humanity is too limited in its mental vision to weigh with patience and intelligence those isolated phenomena seen and felt only by a psychologically sensitive few which lie outside its common experience. Men of broader intellect know that there is no sharp distinction betwixt the real and the unreal. That all things appear as they do only by virtue of the delicate individual, physical, and mental media through which we are made conscious of them. But the prosaic materialism of the majority condemns as madness the flashes of supersight which penetrate the common veil of obvious empiricism. My name is Jervis Dudley, and from earliest childhood I have been a dreamer and a visionary. Wealthy beyond the necessity of a commercial life, and temperamentally unfitted for the formal studies and social recreations of my acquaintances, I have dwelt ever in realms apart from the visible world, spending my youth and adolescence in ancient and little-known books, and in roaming the fields and groves of the region near my ancestral home. I do not think that what I read in these books or saw in these fields and groves was exactly what other boys read and saw there. But of this I must say little, since detailed speech would but confirm those cruel slanders upon my intellect which I sometimes overhear from the whispers of the stealthy attendants around me. It is sufficient for me to relate events without analyzing causes. I have said that I dwelt apart from the visible world, but I have not said that I dwelt alone. This no human creature may do. For lacking the fellowship of the living, he inevitably draws upon the companionship of things that are not, or are no longer, living. Close by my home there lies a singular wooded hollow, in whose twilight deeps I spent most of my time reading, thinking, and dreaming. Down its moss-covered slopes my first steps of infancy were taken, and around its grotesquely gnarled oak trees my first fancies of boyhood were woven. Well did I come to know the presiding dryads of those trees, and often have I watched their wild dances in the struggling beams of a waning moon, but of these things I must not now speak. I will tell only of the lone tomb, in the darkest of the hillside thickets, the deserted tomb of the Hydes, an old and exalted family whose last direct descendants had been laid within its black recesses many decades before my birth. The vault to which I refer is of ancient granite, weathered and discolored by the mists and dampness of generations. Excavated back into the hillside, the structure is visible only at the entrance, the door, a ponderous and forbidding slab of stone, hangs upon rusted iron hinges and is fastened ajar in a queerly sinister way by means of heavy iron chains and padlocks, according to a gruesome fashion of half a century ago. The abode of the race whose scions are here inured had once crowned the declivity which holds the tomb but had long since fallen victim to the flames which sprang up from a disastrous stroke of lightning. 
Of the midnight storm which destroyed this gloomy mansion, the older inhabitants of the region sometimes speak in hushed and uneasy voices alluding to what they call divine wrath, in a manner that in later years vaguely increased the always strong fascination which I felt for the forest-darkened sepulchre. One man only had perished in the fire. When the last of the hides was buried in this place of shade and stillness, the sad urnful of ashes had come from a distant land, to which the family had repaired when the mansion burned down. No one remains to lay flowers before the granite portal, and few care to brave the depressing shadows which seem to linger strangely about the water-worn stones. I shall never forget the afternoon when first I stumbled upon the half-hidden house of death. It was in midsummer when the alchemy of nature transmutes the sylvan landscape to one vivid and almost homogeneous mass of green, when the senses are well-nigh intoxicated with the surging seas of moist verdure and the subtly indefinable odors of the soil and the vegetation. In such surroundings the mind loses its perspective, time and space become trivial and unreal, and echoes of a forgotten prehistoric past beat insistently upon the enthralled consciousness. All day I had been wandering through the mystic groves of the hollow, thinking thoughts I need not discuss, and conversing with things I need not name. In years, a child of ten, I had seen and heard many wonders unknown to the throng, and the oddly aged in certain respects. When upon forcing my way between two savage clumps of briars, I suddenly encountered the entrance of the vault. I had no knowledge of what I had discovered. The dark blocks of granite, the door so curiously ajar, and the funereal carvings above the arch aroused in me no associations of mournful or terrible character. Of graves and tombs I knew and imagined much, but had, on account of my peculiar temperament, been kept from all personal contact with churchyards and cemeteries. The strange stone house on the woodland slope was to me only a source of interest and speculation, and its cold, damp interior into which I vainly peered through the aperture so tantalizingly left contained for me no hint of death or decay. But in that instant of curiosity was born the madly unreasoning desire which had brought me to this hell of confinement. Spurred on by a voice which must have come from the hideous soul of the forest, I resolved to enter the beckoning gloom in spite of the ponderous chains which barred my passage. In the waning light of day, I alternately rattled the rusty impediments with a view to throwing wide the stone door and essayed to squeeze my slight form through the space already provided. But neither plan met with success. At first curious, I was now frantic, and when in the thickening twilight I returned to my home, I had sworn to the hundred gods of the grove that at any cost I would some day force an entrance to the black, chilly depths that seemed calling out to me. The physician with the iron-gray beard, who comes each day to my room, once told a visitor that this decision marks the beginning of a pitiful monomania, but I will leave final judgment to my readers when they shall have learnt all. The months following my discovery were spent in futile attempts to force the complicated padlock of the slightly open vault, 
and in carefully guarded inquiries regarding the nature and history of the structure. With the traditionally receptive ears of the small boy, I learned much, though an habitual secretiveness caused me to tell no one of my information or my resolve. It is perhaps worth mentioning that I was not at all surprised or terrified on learning of the nature of the vault. My rather original ideas regarding life and death had caused me to associate the cold clay with the breathing body in a vague fashion. And I felt that the great and sinister family of the burned-down mansion was in some way represented within the stone space I sought to explore. Mumbled tales of the weird rites and godless revels of bygone years in the ancient hall gave to me a new and potent interest in the tomb, before whose door I would sit for hours at a time each day. Once I thrust a candle within the nearly closed entrance, but could see nothing save a flight of damp stone steps leading downward. The odor of the place repelled yet bewitched me. I felt I had known it before, in a past remote beyond all recollection, beyond even my tenancy of the body I now possess. The year after I first beheld the tomb, I stumbled upon a worm-eaten translation of Plutarch's Lives in the book-filled attic of my home. Reading the life of Theseus, I was much impressed by that passage, telling of the great stone beneath which the boyish hero was to find his tokens of destiny whenever he should become old enough to lift its enormous weight. This legend had the effect of dispelling my keenest impatience to enter the vault, for it made me feel that the time was not yet ripe. Later, I told myself, I should grow to a strength and ingenuity which might enable me to unfasten the heavily chained door with ease, but until then I would do better by conforming to what seemed the will of fate. Accordingly, my watches by the dank portal became less persistent, and much of my time was spent in other, though equally strange, pursuits. I would sometimes rise very quietly in the night, stealing out to walk in those churchyards and places of burial from which I had been kept by my parents. What I did there I may not say, for I am not now sure of the reality of certain things, but I know that on the day after such a nocturnal ramble, I would often astonish those about me with my knowledge of topics almost forgotten for many generations. It was after a night like this that I shocked the community with a queer conceit about the burial of the rich and celebrated Esquire Brewster, a maker of local history who was interred in 1711, and whose slate headstone bearing a graven skull and crossbones was slowly crumbling to powder. In a moment of childish imagination, I vowed not only that the undertaker, Goodman Simpson, had stolen the silver-buckled shoes, silken hose, and satin small clothes of the deceased before burial, but that the squire himself, not fully inanimate, had turned twice in his mound-covered coffin on the day after interment. But the idea of entering the tomb never left my thoughts being indeed stimulated by the unexpected genealogical discovery that my own maternal ancestry possessed at least a slight link with the supposedly extinct family of the Hydes. Last of my paternal race, I was likewise the last of this older and more mysterious line. I began to feel that the tomb was mine, and to look forward with hot eagerness to the time when I might pass within that stone door and down those slimy stone steps in the dark. 
I now formed the habit of listening very intently at the slightly open portal, choosing my favorite hours of midnight stillness for the odd vigil. By the time I came of age, I had made a small clearing in the thicket before the mold-stained facade of the hillside, allowing the surrounding vegetation to encircle and overhang the space like the walls and roof of a sylvan bower. This bower was my temple, the fastened door my shrine, and here I would lie outstretched on the mossy ground, thinking strange thoughts and dreaming of strange dreams. The night of the first revelation was a sultry one. I must have fallen asleep from fatigue, for it was with a distinct sense of awakening that I heard the voices. Of those tones and accents I hesitate to speak, of their quality I will not speak, but I may say that they presented certain uncanny differences in vocabulary, pronunciation, and mode of utterance. Every shade of New England dialect, from the uncouth syllables of the Puritan colonists to the precise rhetoric of fifty years ago, seemed represented in that shadowy colloquy, though it was only later that I noticed the fact. At the time, indeed, my attention was distracted from this matter by another phenomenon, a phenomenon so fleeting that I could not take oath upon its reality. I barely fancied that as I awoke a light had been hurriedly extinguished within the sunken sepulchre. I do not think I was either astounded or panic-stricken, but I know that I was greatly and permanently changed that night. Upon returning home I went, with much directness, to a rotting chest in the attic, wherein I found the key, which next day unlocked with ease the barrier I had so long stormed in vain. It was in the soft glow of late afternoon that I first entered the vault on the abandoned slope. A spell was upon me, and my heart leaped with an exultation I can but ill describe. As I closed the door behind me and descended the dripping steps by the light of my lone candle, I seemed to know the way, and though the candle sputtered with the stifling reek of the place, I felt singularly at home in the musty charnel-house air. Looking about me, I beheld many marble slabs bearing coffins, or the remains of coffins. Some of these were sealed and intact, but others had nearly vanished, leaving the silver handles and plates isolated amidst certain curious heaps of whitish dust. Upon one plate I read the name of Sir Geoffrey Hyde, who had come from Sussex in 1640 and died here a few years later. In a conspicuous alcove was one fairly well-preserved and untenanted casket, adorned with a single name, which brought to me both a smile and a shudder. An odd impulse caused me to climb upon the broad slab, extinguish my candle, and lie down within the vacant box. In the gray light of dawn I staggered from the vault and locked the chain of the door behind me. I was no longer a young man, though but twenty-one winters had chilled my bodily frame. Early rising villagers, who observed my homeward progress, looked at me strangely and marveled at the signs of ribald revelry which they saw in one whose life was known to be sober and solitary. I did not appear before my parents till after a long and refreshing sleep. 
Henceforth I haunted the tomb each night, seeing, hearing, and doing things I must never reveal. My speech, always susceptible to environmental influences, was the first thing to succumb to the change. And my suddenly acquired archaism of diction was soon remarked upon. Later a queer boldness and recklessness came into my demeanor, till I unconsciously grew to possess the bearing of a man of the world, despite my lifelong seclusion. My formerly silent tongue waxed voluble with the easy grace of a Chesterfield or the godless cynicism of a Rochester. I displayed a peculiar erudition utterly unlike the fantastic monkish lore over which I had pored in youth and covered the fly-leaves of my books with facile impromptu epigrams which brought up suggestions of Gay, Pryor, and the sprightliest of the Augustan wits and rhymesters. One morning at breakfast I came close to disaster by declaiming in palpably licorice accents an effusion of eighteenth-century Bacchanalian mirth, a bit of Gregorian playfulness never recorded in a book, which ran something like this. Come hither, my lads, with your tankards of ale, and drink to the present before it shall fail. Pile each on your platter a mountain of beef, for tis eating and drinking that bring us relief. So fill up your glass, for life will soon pass. When you're dead, you'll ne'er drink to your king or your lass. Anacreon had a red nose, so they say. But what's a red nose if you're happy and gay? Gad split me, I'd rather be red whilst I'm here than white as a lily and dead half a year. So Betty, my miss, come give me a kiss. In hell there's no innkeeper's daughter like this. Young Harry, propped up just as straight as he's able, will soon lose his wig and slip under the table. But fill up your goblets and pass them around, better under the table than under the ground. So revel and chaff as ye thirstily quaff, under six feet of dirt tis less easy to laugh. The fiend strike me blue, I'm scarce able to walk, and damn ye if I can stand upright or talk. Here, landlord, bid Betty to summon a chair, I'll try home for a while, for my wife is not there. So lend me a hand, I'm not able to stand, but I'm gay whilst I linger on top of the land. About this time I conceived my present fear of fire and thunderstorms, previously indifferent to such things. I had now an unspeakable horror of them, and would retire to the innermost recesses of the house whenever the heavens threatened an electrical display. A favorite haunt of mine during the day was the ruined cellar of the mansion that had burned down and in fancy I would picture the structure as it had been in its prime. On one occasion I startled a villager by leading him confidently to a shallow sub-cellar, of whose existence I seemed to know in spite of the fact that it had been unseen and forgotten for many generations. At last came that which I had long feared. My parents, alarmed at the altered manner and appearance of their only son, commenced to exert over my movements a kindly espionage which threatened to result in disaster. I had told no one of my visits to the tomb, having guarded my secret purpose with religious zeal since childhood, but now I was forced to exercise care in threading the mazes of the wooded hollow that I might throw off a possible pursuer. My key to the vault I kept suspended from a cord about my neck its presence known only to me. I never carried out of the sepulchre any of the things I came upon whilst within its walls. One morning, as I emerged from the damp tomb and fastened the chain of the portal with none too steady hand, I beheld in an adjacent thicket the dreaded face of a watcher. 
Surely the end was near, for my boyer was discovered, and the objective of my nocturnal journeys revealed. The man did not accost me, so I hastened home in an effort to overhear what he might report to my careworn father. Were my sojourns beyond the chained door about to be proclaimed to the world? Imagine my delighted astonishment on hearing the spy inform my parent in a cautious whisper that I had spent the night in the boyer outside the tomb. My sleep-filmed eyes fixed upon the crevice where the padlocked portal stood ajar. I was now convinced that a supernatural agency protected me. Made bold by this heaven-sent circumstance, I began to resume perfect openness in going to the vault, confident that no one could witness my entrance. For a week I tasted to the full the joys of that charnel conviviality which I must not describe, when the thing happened, and I was borne away to this accursed abode of sorrow and monotony. I should not have ventured out that night, for the taint of thunder was in the clouds, and a hellish phosphorescence rose from the rank swamp at the bottom of the hollow. The call of the dead, too, was different. Instead of the hillside tomb, it was the charred cellar on the crest of the slope whose presiding daemon beckoned to me with unseen fingers. As I emerged from an intervening grove upon the plain before the ruin, I beheld in the misty moonlight a thing I had always vaguely expected. The mansion, gone for a century, once more reared its stately height to the raptured vision every window ablaze with the splendor of many candles. Up the long drive rolled the coaches of the Boston gentry, whilst on foot came a numerous assemblage of powdered exquisites from the neighboring mansions. With this throng I mingled, though I knew I belonged with the hosts rather than with the guests. Inside the hall were music, laughter, and wine on every hand, Several faces I recognized, though I should have known them better had they been shriveled or eaten away by death and decomposition. Amidst a wild and reckless throng, I was the wildest and most abandoned. Gay blasphemy poured in torrents from my lips, and in my shocking sallies I heeded no law of God, man, or nature. Suddenly a peal of thunder resonant even above the din of the swinish revelry clave the very roof and laid a hush of fear upon the boisterous company. Red tongues of flame and searing gusts of heat engulfed the house, and the roisterers struck with terror at the descent of a calamity which seemed to transcend the bounds of unguided nature, fled shrieking into the night. I alone remained riveted to my seat by a groveling fear which I had never felt before. And then a second horror took possession of my soul. Burnt alive to ashes, my body dispersed by the four winds, I might never lie in the tomb of the hides. Was not my coffin prepared for me? Had I not a right to rest till eternity amongst the descendants of Sir Geoffrey Hyde? I, I would claim my heritage of death even though my soul go seeking through the ages for another corporeal tenement to represent it on that vacant slab in the alcove of the vault. Jervis Hyde should never share the sad fate of Palinurus. 
As the phantom of the burning house faded, I found myself screaming and struggling madly in the arms of two men, one of whom was the spy who had followed me to the tomb. Rain was pouring down in torrents, and upon the southern horizon were flashes of the lightning that had so lately passed over our heads. My father, his face lined with sorrow, stood by as I shouted my demands to be laid within the tomb, frequently admonishing my captors to treat me as gently as they could. A blackened circle on the floor of the ruined cellar told of a violent stroke from the heavens. And from this spot a group of curious villagers with lanterns were prying a small box of antique workmanship which the thunderbolt had brought to light. Ceasing my futile and now objectless writhing, I watched the spectators as they viewed the treasure trove and was permitted to share in their discoveries. The box, whose fastenings were broken by the stroke which had unearthed it, contained many papers and objects of value. But I had eyes for one thing alone. It was the porcelain miniature of a young man in a smartly curled bag wig and bore the initials J.H. The face was such that as I gazed I might well have been studying my mirror. On the following day I was brought to this room with the barred windows, but I have been kept informed of certain things through an aged and simple-minded servitor, for whom I bore a fondness in infancy, and who, like me, loves the churchyard. What I have dared relate of my experiences within the vault has brought me only pitying smiles. My father, who visits me frequently, declares that at no time did I pass the chained portal, and swears that the rusted padlock had not been touched for fifty years when he examined it. He even says that all the village knew of my journeys to the tomb, and that I was often watched as I slept in the boyer outside the grim façade, my half-open eyes fixed on the crevice that leads to the interior. Against these assertions I have no tangible proof to offer, since my key to the padlock was lost in the struggle on that night of horrors. The strange things of the past which I learnt during those nocturnal meetings with the dead he dismisses as the fruits of my lifelong and omnivorous browsing amongst the ancient volumes of the family library. Had it not been for my old servant Hiram, I should have by this time become quite convinced of my madness. But Hiram, loyal to the last, has held faith in me and has done that which impels me to make public at least a part of my story. A week ago he burst open the lock which chains the door of the tomb perpetually ajar, and descended with a lantern into the murky depths. On a slab in an alcove he found an old but empty coffin, whose tarnished plate bears the single word, Jervis. In that coffin, and in that vault, they have promised me I shall be buried. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the whole episode, and I hope you all are having a great day, a great commute, a great whatever you're doing. I hope you make your flights on time, I hope you get to your next destination, I hope you have an awesome day at work, I hope your yard work all gets done. Thank you so much for listening, share the show with your friends. Let everyone know about it. If you like the show, give us five stars wherever you listen to and rate podcasts. Tell your friends about it, and have yourselves a wonderful day.